This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Let's get this party started. I have been falling for some shallow White House spin on these Obamacare problems. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Joined by my colleagues, uh, Sarah Cliff and, and Ezra Klein, and, and you too could join us as a colleague. Oh my God, wow. Although not necessarily the on the Not show. on The Weeds. We have some <laughs> jobs open at Vox.com that I think Weeds listeners would be particularly interested in. Um, all our jobs, there are more than I'm going to mention here, are can be seen at VoxMedia.com under the careers page. Again, VoxMedia.com. But we are, are particularly hiring an editor and separately a writer for uh, our new econ and technology site, New Money. Um, we're also looking for a policy editor, uh, which you can apply through that, that same econ editor route. We are looking for a foreign policy staff writer. Uh, so these are, I think, so, some good jobs for, for wonky people who, who enjoy the weeds. We'd love to hear from you. Um, again, it's boxmedia.com. Go to the careers page. There are other open jobs there, too, all throughout the organization. Uh, so check it out if you if Vox seems like a place you might enjoy working. And I actually also have another request. Um, I am doing some reporting on Obamacare right now and the rate increases. I am looking to chat with people who are facing rate increases, who are on the marketplace, who are deciding what they want to do with their health insurance. I would love to talk to you. I love talking to Weeds listeners. I love talking about Obamacare. And I really want to know how you are thinking about these premiums, whether they'll fit in your budget. Um, I was super happy to hear from some Medicaid enrollees the last time I, I put out a call like this. So if you are one of these people who buys insurance on the Obamacare marketplace, drop me a note. Um, you can reach me at sarah at vox.com. You can reach um, our group email at weeds at vox.com and look forward to hearing from some of you. And speaking of the Obamacare rate increases. If you're buying insurance on Obamacare, there's a decent chance that you have gotten a very big bill for next year, that you've gotten a letter from your insurance company saying that your premiums are going to go up much more than they have any other year. So as is probably already known to many of our listeners, we got news this week that Obamacare premiums for the mid-level benchmark plan, we can... I, I do think we really need to explain it because okay. it's important. All right, let's do this. Let's go into the weeds. So Obamacare is something called a benchmark plan. This is a plan that on average covers 70% of an enrollee's cost. So, and this is kind of mid-level coverage. You'd usually kick in 30%, the insurance plan kicks in 70%. And they use one plan in particular to figure out how much subsidies everyone is going to get. So in an ideal world, a bunch of insurance plans submit silver-level plans, these plans that cover 70% of um, enrollee's costs. And the government looks through all these plans and they find the second lowest cost one. <laughs> so let's say one plan charges like, $200 a month, one charges $230, one charges $260. They say, okay, the $231, like that is the benchmark plan. And this benchmark plan determines how many subsidies people get. So they say this is a mid-level plan. We're not going to make like the best plan affordable to you, but we will make this mid-level plan affordable and we'll give you subsidies so you only have to spend a certain percent of your income to afford this mid-level plan. It's very important to how Obamacare works. And it's very important to the affordability of Obamacare. So what we learned this week is that these benchmark plans are going to go up 22 percent in most of the Obamacare, on average, 
across most of the Obamacare markets. Uh, this is way bigger than any other year. The first year they rose 2.5%. Last year they rose 7.5%. And this year we're up to a 22% increase. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 indeed. <laughs> Which is raising some very serious and fair questions about, again, about the sustainability of Obamacare. I think we had these questions raised first when a lot of insurance companies dropped out. We're seeing them raised um, now that these premiums have gone up. And the insurance exits and the premium increases, to me, they kind of speak to the same problem. They're, they're, they're two different parts, sides of the same coin, which is that the people who have signed up for the marketplace, there are fewer of them than expected. They are much sicker than expected. And this makes it very hard to insure these people with cheaper premiums. So you've seen insurance companies essentially making one of two decisions. You've seen them leaving the market, which is the decision they had to make this summer. And you've seen them raising premiums, which is the decision that they're making now. And it all stems from who is signing up for Obamacare and that population being much smaller and significantly sicker than Democrats and the drafters of Obamacare had expected. Okay, so a couple of things here that I think are are important trying to wrap around this story. One is that one goes to the benchmark silver plan subsidy. So what is happening here is we are all reporting it correctly as premiums are going up on average by 22 percent. But for people, premiums are not going up on average by 22 percent. They're often not going up at all because the subsidies are tied to the plan itself. And as the plan increases in cost, so too do the subsidies increase in their generosity because the subsidies are not uh, a fixed dollar amount. They're capping what percentage of your income you can spend on a plan. Your income – would have to be the thing that changed for the subsidy level to change. And your income is not the thing that re- there that is changing. So this does not mean nobody is paying the new cost. It means the people paying the cost are, on the one hand, folks who are not subsidized in the marketplace, which is roughly 20, 30%, 20, 17%. And two, of course, taxpayers, right? Well, and three, there's about – this is a group we forget about, but Larry Levitt, if you read um, my Q&A with him on Wednesday on Vox.com um, – <laughs> He argues there's a third group that's actually even more important, which is 7 million people who buy coverage off the marketplace who are affected by the exact same rate hikes. And so that's another group I don't want to leave out. And might be eligible for subsidies might be eligible aren't for getting subsidies. them because right. they're there's buying outside the marketplace. a bit of a debate about like how much these people are. And we know very little about the people right. who buy off marketplace, but there are a lot of them. OK, so one thing here that just we really have to keep in mind, because I think it's very important – to be precise about what is the problem here. And I think to some degree, this is going to be what we end up arguing out during during this uh, segment. I think the thing people think will be the problem here is that uh, people who don't have much money are about to find their health insurance became unaffordable. That's probably not going to happen very often. It will happen for the 17 percent who make more than roughly, let's say, 300 percent of the poverty line because subsidies phase out radically then and then phase out completely at 400 percent. And that's that that's something to very much be concerned about. But beneath that, I don't think you're going to see a huge change in affordability. What you are seeing are a couple of things that are really significant. One problem that you're going to have here is that if this is not a one-time correction in the market, and it might be, subsidies were much lower than we expected for the first couple of years of Obamacare, and it looks like insurers underpriced them potentially because they – made bad estimates of how sick the population be and potentially because they were trying to get the largest share of the market and then raise prices on people once they had a customer base locked in. But either way, insurers are not finding the Obamacare marketplaces to be overall a very profitable place to operate. Um, in order to make them more profitable, they're trying to do a big premium hike or leaving the markets entirely and just giving up. But the result of that is that, as you wrote today, Sarah, 
about a thousand counties are down to one insurance issuer. So, and, and the reason I think it's really important is that if you are trying to keep costs down long term and you're trying to have competition long term, you need more than one one issuer. And just can I put that in context? Yeah. Like that's a huge change. In 2016, yep. it was 182 counties with one insurer. Now we're up to 960 in just one year. Like it's a huge, huge change. And, and in so the that's law. gone from Obamacare having these competitive marketplaces where different issuers are fighting each other for people's business to basically this being. I mean, there are some places where you do have a lot of competition, but in much of the country. Obamacare now has a single issuer, and it's Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's a pact between the federal government and Blue Cross Blue Shield to make this program work. And so the marketplaces themselves are are failing, are beginning to fail across a broad swath of the country in their promise, which was to have this competitive dynamic um, underlying them. And then the final thing that I think is important here, because this really will matter going forward. As Sarah said, we expect Obamacare has fewer people in the marketplaces than we expected. We thought by now there would be, according to CBO, roughly 20 million. It's really roughly 10 million. That's made it hard to get enough folks in there for there to be a, um, a stable price pool. So what we now need to find out is there's going to be this big rate increase. Does that drive healthy people out and make the risk pool worse? Or because a lot of these plans that are outside the marketplaces that were grandfathered are beginning to expire because the individual mandate is getting tougher and tougher because um, just this is going on for a long time. Do people keep coming into the marketplace? And now that the price is stabilized with this rate increase, we begin to get a more stable, more predictable risk pool that insurers can price around and build businesses around. And that question, that question of are we correcting the market? such that it can function better? Or is this the beginning of the market breaking such that it won't function at all in places like Arizona? That to me is 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 the big unknown here. I feel like until I dug into this report, when some earlier iterations of these like Obamacare scare stories had come out, I had done a little bit of a mental cocooning thing. And I had focused on the sort of worst you know, like most overblown critical stories. And then I'd look back and been like, look, okay, yes, individual people are not going to see, particularly like poor people are not going to see health insurance now become unaffordable. And in particular, the sort of Republican critique, like, oh, your health insurance has become too expensive. So let's make sure you have no health insurance. Like, it makes no sense, right? There's to whatever extent the problem is that people are not getting affordable health insurance, the Republican Obamacare agenda, which is to repeal it, does not solve that problem in, in any way. Um, and that had gotten me like kind of defensive about, about the whole thing. But when you step back and you look at the underlying dynamic here, whether it stabilizes or not, is that you have a marketplaces that are being held up by the subsidy. Right. They are not the mandate and the quality of the plans and the and the magic of competition, whatever we're supposed to do it is not getting people who are earning 300, 400, 500 percent of the poverty line into these kinds of pools. Right. And that was an important part of like the broad idea of like, why are we doing this at all? Right. Like the the problem space was defined not as we need to find a way to put more money into the pockets of low income people, because that's a conceptually very easy problem mm-hmm. to solve. The problem is just how can we find a cost effective way of creating a American version of a universal healthcare system that will not have these gigantic 
gaps in it. And the idea of an individual mandate so that there would be a broad risk pool of sliding scale subsidies so that poor people would be able to participate. But even notice, right, it's like when you would describe the three-legged stool, the baseline assumption was that by getting everyone to participate, middle class people just would be able to afford the premiums, mm-hmm. and then you would need subsidies to right. make sure that poor people could also participate. And what's really happening is the opposite of that, right? If you are poor enough, the government will give you a huge coupon to go buy health insurance. And so you do it. I mean, it's you're just like throwing money away by, by not doing it. Um, but if you if you aren't eligible for that coupon, the system that has been set up is just not that appealing. It's 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 not that good. So to the extent that like one of the aspirations of the Affordable Care Act was to, you know, create a program that I, I don't know exactly how to say, it, but like that people would like. Right. The way that like if you could remember was like, let's not have Social Security. People would say, no, Social Security is good. I like Social Security. Or like, let's not have high schools. They'd say, no, like high school is good. I send my kids to high school. Um, You know, like like a social service that like people would use and embrace. Right. And the exchanges are failing to do that. Right. They are succeeding at subsidizing people who are eligible for subsidy, just as the the larger law does a lot more than the exchange, right? And so, like, putting a lot more money into Medicaid is getting a lot more people onto Medicaid, which is amazing for them. Um, the exchanges themselves are working a little bit like a, like a Medicaid Plus, particularly in these areas where it's really just blue cross. An inefficient Medicaid. Right. And it, and it re-raises – I think it really does re-raise the whole from-the-left critique – Of the Affordable Care Act, which was like, why are we doing this? Right. Like, what is the point of this extremely complicated apparatus and like the second cheapest (laughs) silver plan benchmark, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. It it does not seem like we have discovered a better way of delivering health care to people or of collecting the revenue necessary to make sure that everybody has insurance. There's like this enormous Rube Goldberg contraption that is not giving many people meaningful choices. It's not creating a like, workable solution for middle-class self-employed people. Um, in terms of ways to just boost the incomes of low-income people, it's very roundabout, right? I mean, you could just give everybody checks and they could use them to buy insurance or buy Skittles or, or whatever it is they want. Um, you could have just expanded Medicaid more. And it, it really does seem to me like not like it's going to fail in the sense that like the program must end, but that like unless a substantial change is made like through Congress, that it is not going to achieve the like lofty goals that were set out. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel things 
things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. But it's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. It's hard to think back to five years ago and how much the goalposts have shifted, but they really have. And the view of what what Obamacare would be and who it would serve has changed a lot. Can I quickly um, say something on your behalf? Yes. On this point, everybody should read Sarah Cliff's article <laughs> called, quote, Is Obamacare Failing? Which great. is, I think, the best. I agree with you, Ezra. Right. That was a great interruption. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was actually, as I was working on that piece last night, I was reading through old um, Congressional Budget Office reports, as one is wont to do. And back in 2009, um, the CBO, which is the kind of nonpartisan scorekeeper here in Washington, they estimated that 43% of people would pay their entire premium, that you'd have this really big group of middle-income people who are almost half of the marketplace. And now we're at 17%. So that's really a shift in who we thought was going to use the marketplace, that there was this expectation. I think, Ezra, you probably remember from covering Mm -hmm. this that it would be like some kind of version of kayak that we would have like a lot of people and that would build the buy-in that people, you know, you'd have this more. There would be a lot of plans, and a, a lot, lot of plans, a lot of shopping. Consumers. And now I think you're right. There's this kind of critique on the left. Well, what's the point of doing this with private insurance? We essentially built it to fail because we're working with these for-profit insurers who are more beholden to their shareholders than they are to the people buying insurance. Of course, this was going to work. wasn't going to work. I... I don't share that view because I feel like we see versions of this working elsewhere mm-hmm. in the world and that we made some political decisions that the fault for the problems in the marketplace right now isn't solely on the fact we decided to work for poor profit insurers. It's on how we decided to regulate them. And I know, Matt, this is something you've written on, but you do see other countries like Switzerland that do have these insurance systems that rely on private insurers. And what they do is they really just like regulate the shit out of it. Like, there are so many more regulations on the insurers. There are so many more regulations on the people that their individual mandate. Um, I had a fascinating discussion with um, Uwe Reinhardt, a health economist at Princeton, who um, was talking about how they throw you in jail if you don't have insurance <laughs> there. Like, if you move to a new place in Switzerland and you don't sign up for insurance in 90 days, they pick a plan for you. They start garnishing your wages. And if you somehow try and avoid this, like, you can go to prison. And we kind of landed in the middle where we chose we wanted to work with private insurance companies, but we didn't really set up an infrastructure for success. Like you wrote about earlier this week, Matt, that we chose a super weak mandate where it's a pretty it's a it's a strong mandate if you're poor. If if paying seven hundred dollars is a lot of money when you're around like 200 percent or 150 percent of the poverty line, it's not that much. Especially when the alternative. Especially when the alternative is is a very heavily subsidized insurance. When you get up to, I think um, Avalier Health has done some great analysis on this. When you get up to 200 percent of the poverty line, which isn't a super high income, that's like 22,000 for an individual, it's already cheaper to pay the penalty than it is to buy insurance. So I, I think this kind of Rube Goldberg-esque scheme, other countries have made it work. Like they've set up regulations that make this type of system work. 
we, I, I think mostly for political reasons, didn't want to go all the way. And I think you're seeing the consequences of that play out and the kind of difficulty the marketplace is having right now. Uh, I want to say it's not just other countries. California is making this work. Massachusetts mm-hmm. made this work in a, in a different way um, and, and has continued to, I think, have a pretty functional healthcare market. Uh, it is the case that so I began this piece, and I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but because <laughs> that's how most of my pieces go now. But but the first line, which I like, is that Obamacare is succeeding in its goals, failing in its ambitions, and disproving something Republicans really actually needed to prove. And and what I mean by that is one thing that I think it's easy to forget about here in, in this conversation. We're focusing on this: the law is covering a lot of people. Um, it's covering them with health insurance they like. And it is under cost. There are some big things Obamacare is doing reasonably well that were parts of the goal. They were not they, they were not, though, the ambitions for the law, which was the, the the hope that the law would transition us to a new kind of healthcare system that would be a bridge between us and a kind of Denmark like uh, health equilibrium. And, and I think one way you see where this is failing and it relates to what Sarah was saying about about middle income folks. If you go back three years and you read what people were saying was going to happen to destroy the law, it's the opposite thing. The idea was that employers were going to dump into the marketplaces because it would be so appealing to them and to their uh, employees to just take advantage of Uncle Sam's subsidies and to just stop offering health insurance. That just never happened. And on the one hand, it's potentially good it never happened because that would have been a big shift from employers to, to taxpayers in terms of in terms of cost. But on the other hand, it's meant that that's been part of these marketplaces not being attractive to higher income and also to healthier applicants. But it, it has worked much better in states that have been committed to making it work and in states that have really tried and built their marketplaces. It's also, I think, been better in more populous states. Uh, one thing that you're just seeing here is that, you know, if you're in a place like California and, and particularly in some of the very big counties in California like L.A. or San Francisco, a lot of insurers want to be there and sell there. And so the marketplaces can work pretty well. If you're in a much more rural state or a much more rural county, it's just running a health insurer is hard. And there isn't as much of an upside to competing there. And so in places where a competition-based marketplace does not work that well in a place where there isn't a, a strong incentive for competition. But the final point here that I, I do want to make, and, and this goes a little bit to what Matt was saying, there are somewhat strangely two competing theories of health reform happening in Obamacare simultaneously. One of them is a traditional left theory of health reform, which is continue expanding single-payer insurance systems to a larger and larger fraction of the population. And that's what we did with Medicaid. The other is a traditionally Republican theory of health reform. It's been abandoned by Republicans, but it's what Mitt Romney did in Massachusetts. It's what you saw as the sort of Republican alternative in the 90s to Clinton care. And that is to create these regulated marketplaces um, of private insurers who have a certain set of government uh, impositions on them, but it's not that heavy. You have an individual mandate to create personal responsibility and so on. And if you look at what Republicans want to do with the healthcare system in other places, um, like Medicare, they want to create exchanges. The Paul Ryan plan for Medicare is to do Obamacare-like marketplaces in Medicare. What is happening there right now is that a lot of Republicans, I think, are, are sort of chortling over the problems Obamacare is having, but in a slightly more long-term way. What's happening here is that the argument for just expanding simple government programs is strengthening. Uh, the you know I think that a lot of as as men is saying a lot of Democrats would like to go back and just try to to put their eggs into the 
bring Medicare down to age 55 and bring Medicaid up to 300% of the poverty line basket and then just kind of keep doing that slowly and create a single payer system, you know, by uh, by a sort of war of inches. Meanwhile, Republicans have wanted Obamacare to fail, but they don't want this theory of regulated private markets to fail because there are a lot of places where um, the folks need some kind of subsidized option. And either you're going to have a regulated private market of private options or you're going to have a, a single payer system. So you could fix Obamacare. You could fix these marketplaces. You could make the individual mandate stronger. You could make the subsidies better. You could make a little bit more wraparound. You could add national health insurance plans or a public option to put in more competition. Mechanically, what you would do here is not actually that complicated. But Without a political party that wants to fix it, it won't get fixed. And and what I think is a little bit – ironic is not quite the right word, but I understand why Republicans don't want to fix it. They feel burnt by Obamacare. They feel it was rammed down their throats. They don't like the law, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for all the short-term um, p- potential political profit that, that, that offers them – not fixing this, letting this stand as a reason that you don't want to do this kind of expansion of, of government services and instead you want to go the single payer route is not long term going to be good for conservatism. You know, I, I mean, one thing I, I do want to say, because because I, I agree with what both, both Sarah and Ezra said, that the, that the problems here are largely political in nature. It's not conceptually unworkable, as we see in, in other countries. Um, but also that I am not personally like one of the like hardcore single payer activists, uh, but I do sympathize a lot with their position, and I do want to like speak up for their point of view because like the whole critique of the hardcore single payer activists is that they were putting forward a politically implausible thing, and then they would say, "Well, look, we have all these other countries in Canada, blah blah blah, it works, it works, it works," <laughs> and then people would be saying, "Okay, but I mean, you have to think not about like." Could we I, I think Hillary Clinton herself was saying this and Barack Obama, like not like could we do this if we started from scratch, but like in the real world, could we make this work? But that's exactly the standard that the individual mandate has failed, right? Uh-huh. Not like could you in theory totally regulate fair. insurance companies so tightly that people would be willing to accept non-purchase of health insurance as a serious crime with serious consequences but like can you actually in partnership with karen ignani put together she's a, not head she's of not, ahab yeah. anymore uh, in, a, in an amazing the, in an amazing was. revolving door kind uh-huh. of thing it's marilyn tavener right yes okay former cms, former CMS director well, there so, you go uh, but, 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 is, but, it, yes. but it, it's to the point right i mean so somewhat in defense of, of the revolving door actually in massachusetts where this works pretty well one reason that it works well is actually that the health care industry health care providers are such a dominant force in massachusetts's political economy it's a huge center of medical research they provide a lot of health care services to a broader new england kind of market and um for for a, a long time during the implementation of Romney Care, the head of Massachusetts Blue Cross was a former Democratic state senator, you know, who like hopped over there to like make the big nonprofit insurance provider. Like it was, it was a very cozy group yeah. of people in the major Boston hospitals, in the insurance community, and in the state government who like all of them collectively like wanted this to work and they were all going to get paid and they were all going to have a nice round of applause. And like it did work. Um, America as a whole, though, has a in some ways too much of an arm's length relationship between these different players. You don't have like the kind of 
trust where insurance companies will be like, sure, we'll become heavily regulated <laughs> utilities. And in exchange, the government will like herd all these new customers our way. And then also insurance companies don't poll well, right? Like when Democrats were passing the law, they were constantly talking about how they were like standing up to the insurance companies when they weren't. Um, but it's like really hard to say you're standing up to the insurance companies while talking about where well, you're going to pay a $5,000 fine if you don't go buy the insurance company's product. Um, so, you know, and it's also, by the way, just getting now and, and this is a single right. payer point, much harder for the government to stand up to the insurance. Like yeah. if they piss off Blue Cross Blue Shield, like they're fucked. <laughs> right. Well, and but this is where I do think one thread of of sort of hope lies, right, which is that as governors of rural states, which are not all Many red states are not that rural um, and some rural states are not that red, but there's a large block of sort of plainsy states that are very heavily Republican, very heavily rural, where this system is working terribly and where honestly, though, they have like just a big basic problem with the fact that like not that many people live there. So there's not that many healthcare providers. So there's not much competition and it's like hard to make things work. Governors of those states who want to make the lives of the citizens of Wyoming and, you know, rural Nebraska and wherever else better are going to have to come up with something else to do and are going to have through the, the waiver process, like more opportunity to request the ability to, like, come up with something that they will then be necessarily like taking responsibility for trying to make work. I think there's like strong political incentive for Republicans to not do that. Um, it's a genuinely unfavorable circumstance being a, a low population density rural state. And if I could just avoid taking responsibility for it and say like, oh, it's Obama's fault, you know, I would. But with every passing year, particularly if Hillary Clinton wins the election, the balance of risks of like, well, okay, am I ducking responsibility for this versus like, am I actually failing to address a problem that is annoying people, you know, do come into into tension with each other. And we have seen this already in a number of the Medicaid states, you know, where Republican governors will say, look, I don't know, this was not my idea to do this Medicaid expansion, but like, here's something I want to put on the table. And I, I do think we will eventually start to see some more of that on, on the exchanges and, and possibly but, something workable will come out of but it. But what are they going to do? Like, I, I don't see any more states building their own marketplaces just because like most of them, a number of them that were built have ultimately shuttered, connect um, Kentucky, like the poster child right. Obamacare marketplace was closed this year by Governor Matt Bevan. I think you're right on Medicaid. Like it's a clear thing that people are missing out on and a thing that changes over time, I might not get the dates exactly right here, but I know when Medicaid launched initially in 1965, only about half the states signed up. And it took until the 1980s to get the last state, Arizona, um, on board in expanding Medicaid. So it really was this, you know, multi-decade quest to get everyone signed up. And we're actually, I think, about like on the same trajectory. It feels weird that a lot of governors are still re rejecting Medicaid, but it actually looks very similar to the initial decision about Medicaid. I'm not sure there's a ton that states can do to make the marketplaces work better. I think there's some stuff on the edges. Like California, I think, is like doing a lot of things where I think California is very advantaged by their large population. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the Florida marketplace is also working amazingly and, and the governor hates it. Like the state is doing no work 
to make it work. But it's a place with a lot of people. A lot of insurers are interested in selling there. Um, a lot of like uh, pro Obamacare nonprofits have set up shop to work on enrollment. Yeah. So I, I, it's hard for me to see like one whether it's a big problem. Like as we mentioned, most people on the marketplaces are getting pretty heavy subsidies. They're they might have to switch plans, but you know if you're in. <laughs> If you're in like Oklahoma, for example, you just have one plan. You're not going to switch plans because there is just one one insurer selling you coverage. I, I don't actually know it becomes that that disruptive or that much of a problem or what even a state what a state could do about it. I think we need to just be clear as we're having this part of the discussion in what the underlying assumptions of it are. So again, if this is a one year thing of a twenty two point five percent increase, and next year it's a six point four percent increase. No state is going to have an incentive to do anything, right? They'll just let this thing kind of continue on. And I think this goes to your piece about the Medicaidization of Obamacare. What Matt, I think, is saying here is like, okay, let's say we go into collapse scenarios. You know, let's say that we have a state where there's no insurers who want to participate or, you know, we see another year of 17 percent increase, you know, stuff like that where it really is getting non-manageable and you have a a crisis that you have to do something about. So there I think um, what Obamacare does have is a waiver process where more than like rebuilding the marketplace, you could build anything you wanted in its place. The problem is it's a ton of work to do that, like to create a, I mean, and you've reported, Sarah, a lot on Vermont's effort to use a waiver process to create single payer, which has basically crashed and burned. But you could do a lot of things without that that are very clever. Now, if you talk to Republicans about this, and Ramesh Panuru ha- had a piece on this that I agree to some pieces of and disagreed with others, but, but one thing I think he says that is correct is that one problem with the waiver process is that it forces you to hold to all of Obamacare's basic assumptions um, about what it will do. So you you have to say – you have to prove to the government that you will be covering as many people with as comprehensive coverage as Obamacare. Now, I am not a fan of reducing the cover as many people part of that uh, sentence. But I do think it would make sense, particularly as we are seeing that the coverage levels in Obamacare are not proving that attractive to people. It is not that we are seeing a market response of folks saying, I really want this. And by by giving me good health insurance, you know, I, I, I'm in a rush in this marketplace. I think it would make sense to, to draw that down. One of the funny twists of all this uh, is that one of the most interesting Obamacare reform plans right now is co-sponsored by Tim Kaine. And most people, I think, have forgotten this plan happened. But it was about two years ago and Mark Warner and Mark Begich and Tim Kaine and a bunch of other kind of purplish state Democrats uh, and, and some red state Democrats like Begich came out with a plan called the, the – co- I forget what copper, they called it. But, copper plan. But in it, it had the copper plan. I yeah. forget what the bill's name oh, was. Yeah. And what the copper plan does is – Sarah, you may know what the, the lowest level, the bronze in Obamacare is, 65 percent? 60? 65. All right. Something ish. there. Copper plan brings it down to 50 percent actuarial value. Like that is a very sparse plan. So you're saying that it is only going to – you're going to have plans that are only going to cover 50 percent of what uh, – of your expected health care costs. But doing something in the waiver process – 60 percent. 60. Bronze, so you'd be bringing it down to, to 50. Um you know, you could do more things for essential benefits to allow more catastrophic plans. I mean, I mean, I think that if you start going to this kind of scenario, that the right thing to do is to power the waiver process up and give states more flexibility. Because unless the Obama or the Clinton administration really does have a way to meet all of Obamacare's goals, despite the fact that Obamacare in a certain number of states is failing to meet those goals itself, 
um, I think they have to, at a certain point, begin compromising down the goals. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I, I just wanted to say in, in response to Sarah that, that my thinking about this is that when you look at there's a bunch of issues going on with, with the exchanges. But but the issue in heavily rural areas, I think, is largely driven by the fundamentals of those areas and like mm-hmm. nothing to do with the marketplace. It's like just the case that if the biggest city that's anywhere near you is really small, that city is not going to contain very many healthcare specialists and it will be ex- they will have a lot of pricing power. Um, and it's really not going to be a good dynamic to have like a bunch of different insurance companies competing for contracts with like just one hospital. Uh-huh. Um, it's just not the it's not efficient to deliver healthcare services to rural areas. If you are the governor of Wyoming, that is just a problem that you have been to some extent grappling with for decades. Well, I mean. Different governors. Um, but it becomes more a tyrant of Wyoming. It becomes more intense over time as for like various reasons, healthcare just becomes a more and more important, more and more costly industry, right? And so one thing that those areas uh, rely on very heavily is that the Medicare program makes some special allowances for the the needs of of rural areas. Um, As long as you have the federal government having sort of a a stream of money for healthcare, and you have a state that has some like fundamental problems with attracting an adequate quantity of healthcare providers, I think it just it has to be very tempting to say, I want to come up with something that I can submit to HHS that will get me like something that is useful rather than going into a system where fewer and fewer people sign up and therefore there's less and less subsidy, less and less purchase, and like your overall state like healthcare infrastructure is sort of decaying. Now, what the specific mechanics of like how do you do that that waiver process and stuff are, I, you know, is hard. Um, but it, just my point is these, these plain states, not the deep south states where they have a lot of these zero provider counties, but also have cities, but the plain states where they really don't, like They've now kicked out most of their uh, pork barrel-y Democratic senators who used to try to solve these problems mm-hmm. for them. And they're going to have to come up with like something to do because people people want doctors. Um, private employers are going to find it difficult to purchase health insurance mm-hmm. in states where no one wants to sell health insurance. Well, I don't think you're seeing carriers drop out of the employer market. Like that doesn't seem to be a problem in these states. And I think – like the point you made, the mechanics of this are hard. Like that is why I, I I do not expect to see much use of the waiver process at all. Um, mostly a, a lot of this comes from writing about Vermont, which wanted to make a waiver work so badly and had like the entire political infrastructure, medical infrastructure, like everyone was rooting for single payer. And it basically collapsed on the fact that it would shift so much of um, of the burden of healthcare into taxes in a way that even in Vermont didn't feel reasonable and I think one reason, so I kind of think of it almost like a scale. So on the, on the one hand, it's really hard to design a waiver. So I agree with like Ramesh's argument. It's really hard to design a waiver that can hit all the points that the administration wants. And then you're also talking about at the end of the day, like a pretty small part of your population. Like we have nationally 10 million people getting coverage through the marketplace in a country with about 330 million people. So even though this is a population 
we talk about a lot, it's a very small population. So when I look at that calculus of requires a lot of work, no one else has done it before. You don't have like a plan you can take from another red state and like bring into your state and then like a pretty tiny population you're talking about. I'm just pretty skeptical that a governor who generally opposes the law would do much to fix it and would face significant political consequences for not taking that action. Yeah, I, I broadly agree with that, although I'm just for no reason, given that it has no possibility of ever happening, going to throw out more, I think, fun fix ideas, <laughs> which is I think something, again, that if we lived in a political system where people wanted to make this work or wanted to have a bunch of things happening simultaneously that, that could help make it work is you could do something that was three-pronged like this. One is that you could you could first just drop down the um, actuarial value requirements and to 50 or something in that area. I think the essential benefit, like the difficulty of meeting the essential benefits requirements is actually overstated. But nevertheless, you could drop that down too. Um, so you can give people a lot more room to experiment. And even without using the waiver process, it would be easier for insurers to offer truly catastrophic policies. You know, you, you could have things like that. That might be more appealing. Young people can already get catastrophic policies, but it might be more appealing to, say, 45-year-olds who don't have that much money but have enough. Um, so that's one thing. But simultaneously, because the competition is really a problem, particularly some of these rural states, I think this has really strengthened the case for a public option, at the very least a public option that would trigger in markets that have fewer than that have three or fewer issuers. So I think like that would make a lot of sense. And then there's a, a idea that was in Sanders's campaign. Hillary Clinton has embraced it. It was killed at the end of the Obamacare process by Joe Lieberman, by the way, to allow Medicare buy-in for folks 55 and up. And I think that is a really good idea on a lot of levels. But one thing it would also do is take people whose healthcare costs are quite high and bring them into a system or give them access to a system that is quite good at negotiating for them, that is quite cheap for what they need, that is going to be the system they're going to be on in 10 years anyway. And so it just makes a lot of sense. And it would, in a, like at the stroke of a moment, uh, create more actuarial balance for Obamacare itself. And so, I mean, if you did those three things and what you could do is you could have, on the one hand, marketplaces were a lot more like what Republicans think will work. And, and and would want, right? Marketplaces that have much less in the way of regulation of the insurers, much more catastrophic insurance, that kind of thing. A public option to ensure there's competition in places where there wouldn't otherwise be competition. And a Medicare buy-in. So the folks who, you know, and this has always been the case in, in health insurance just broadly, the folk, like the older you get, the sicker you get, the harder it is to structure a health insurance market in a free market way that, that works for you. And you can, you know, just give them an on-ramp using, say, Obamacare subsidies, uh, or even not using Obamacare subsidies into into Medicare. Now, again, is this going to happen? No, but I think it would make a lot of sense. In Obamacare, there's actually a requirement that the government find two national plans to cover the entire country. Yeah, um, it's called the multi-state plan, and it was working for a little bit. So there was a phase in of it. I forget, like the you know year one, you had like twenty states. You're 225, um, and then like eventually scaling up, I think, over three or four years to the entire country. And they did year one, I think, just with Blue Cross Blue Shield, and then it kind of just went away, and no one ever really talked about it again. I think there was some escape hatch that like made this regulatorily. It shows the drafters thinking about like this exact problem that there are going to be these rural areas of the country that are not going to attract a lot of carriers. And the solution they came up with, which, um, you know, is not a public option, is saying, OK, we're going to find two partners who want to be national carriers. And 
they couldn't find those partners. I think it speaks to why, if you're going to do a national plan, you're going to need to build it yourself versus like yeah, rely right. on a partner. I think there are two big unknowns I just want to put on the table here at the end of the conversation. One, again, is whether what we are seeing right now is a market correction or a fundamental instability. Uh, a lot of experts I know that you've spoken to that I've been hearing from seem to think it's a market correction, that things were too cheap and now they're going to be expensive, and and but that will make things work and it will return to stability over time. And then you're just going to be back on the course we were on six months ago where you're just kind of muddling through, right? It's not fulfilling anybody's wildest dreams for the, the plan, but it isn't in a state of crisis by any means. So that I think is just one thing that a lot of this conversation I think has proceeded from the premise of crisis because right now we're talking about some very bad news for Obamacare, but it isn't clear that that is going to be a, a perpetual state of existence for the law. The other thing is – how does having Hillary Clinton as president, just someone who is not Barack Obama as president, change incentives around this? I don't think it changes them dramatically. But one thing that really is different now is that it is the, – the way the political debate proceeds is that Hillary Clinton, who did not vote for the law and because she was secretary of state, also did not really talk about it, um, her – uh, she has the ability to have a stated position, which is different really from the one Obama is able to hold uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that feels credible to people of, you know, kind of mend it, right? Like, let's figure out how to fix a lot, has problems, like I'm perfectly happy admitting the problems, like let's go forward on that. Uh, and Republicans, I think, you know, if this key, if this goes bad, like one question for them is really, can they sustain a pure sort of repeal and replace position in, at a time when Obama, when like the namesake of Obamacare is not on the ballot anymore, right? In the same way that Barack Obama was president when No Child Left Behind's problems became completely unignorable. If George W. Bush had been president during that, I think that that debate would have proceeded differently. But because Obama was president, it was a little bit easier for everybody to try to just ultimately come together and fix it, which they sort of – I don't know how well people think the fix works or is working, but which they sort of quietly did. And I think one of the, the big questions of Obamacare is four years from now um, after – you know, like or five years from now, does it end up in a similar position to No Child Left Behind where it's nobody's political problem exactly in the same way. So it's a little bit easier for, for multiple sides to come together and fix it. This is not something for next year, but I do think it is possibly true for, you know, um, five years. Can I respond quickly to yeah. your first point before we move on? So I have become, I've been doing a lot of reporting on this. I've come to side with people who also think it's a one-time course correction. I think this, there might be an exception in a few states. Like you look at Arizona, which has like a 116% rate increase, like that could cause some very serious problems. Yeah, that's wild. It's really crazy. But one of the things I think we lose here is – and this is something I you know, felt like I lost sight of um, during the original healthcare.gov enrollment when basically no one was signing up. There were all these issues with, um, with the website. It wasn't working. But at the end of the day, they actually ended up for that first year meeting their enrollment target. And you know, I talked to a lot of people who dealt with a lot of bullshit trying to sign up and like were constantly trying – and one of the things that reminded me, which I think is very easy to forget if you are used to having health insurance, that it really sucks not to have health insurance. Like it, the people who are buying insurance in the marketplace tend to already like be buying it for a reason. They've put up with spending a decent part of their income on these premiums. Um, I was emailing with a pollster who was actually just doing focus groups with Obamacare enrollees earlier this week, who was saying there was a lot of griping about the increased premiums, but at the end of the day, people are saying, well. 
yeah, I'm going to keep my plan. Like, I'm going to stick with it because I need health insurance, but this really sucks. And it, it was a helpful reminder that a lot of these people really value the product that they are buying and are not going to leave the marketplace in droves, even if they are in the unsubsidized population. One bit of pushback on that, though. Yeah. The dynamic you just described is how you get a pretty sick population, right? The the, the people, right. like when you look at why you're at 10 million and not 20 million, like some amount of that delta is people who are healthy are not signing up. And like, that's part of why, sure. but, you no, know, no, I just think like this 10 to 11 million population, like we're going to, we're, yeah, we're not going to see that. I, I don't I think we're going to have like massive growth up to the CBO projections. Right. I don't think we're going to see the scenario where like the marketplace falls to like eight million or seven million next year. I, I totally buy that. I just I just think that for them to figure out really how to like get this on a good course, they they need to have people who don't need healthcare so badly. Like uh, a, lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people join healthy, right? right? You need someone who's like, I would rather spend sixteen hundred dollars and get health insurance. Then spend seven hundred dollars to the IRS and not get health insurance, but not like because you're ill, but just right. like for the insurance value, right? Yeah. You ha- and it and I think a lot of these different trends like pull in another direction from that because I think you know you really have to think right if you're an insurance company and you are operating in a state. That has only one company on the exchange and the population on the exchange is overwhelmingly composed of people below 200 percent of the poverty line, right? You have no competitors and you have a price insensitive customer base. Like aren't you going to keep jacking premiums up a lot? I mean not not to say we'll have a national average of 25 percent because obviously most people live in – States that have a lot of people living in them, um, you know, maps can make this look bleak, but like not that many people live in in rural areas. But in the places where it's there, right, it seems like, you know, you really do want to you just want to avoid having any given year's increase be like so gigantic that you tempt a competitor to come in. Right. But you're talking about not super desirable markets, customers who are not that price sensitive. And it doesn't cause the system to collapse because it's an it's structured as an entitlement program. So the people keep getting the subsidies. Um, at some point, just the whole kit and caboodle gets into the mix of like budget negotiations, especially when the president is not someone whose like personal legacy is on the line here. And someone is going to be saying, like, well, why are we spending this like open ended quantity of money? For a subsidized program that not that many people use, that like isn't doesn't poll well, you know, like how how politically defensible does this become once it stops being the case that the costs are coming in below projection? Said, so there are some downward pressures on premiums. I know we're going super. No, we've we should. Ezra's last point for no, a while. No, this is great. But so you do have the medical loss ratio provision, which requires a 80 percent of premiums on the individual market be spent on. Um, Care And then you do have rate regulation where there is typically in most states some levels review, some levels they actually have to approve it. In some places, this is totally fucked up at this point where you have Georgia's insurance commissioner, I think it was, talking about look at these like terrible rates that are going up and are going to like dismantle Obamacare. Um, like kind of like being gleeful about what high rates were coming in in his state. Um, I think one of the things that's actually protecting Obamacare budget-wise right now is the fact the enrollment is low. So even though yeah. – Person-per-person subsidies are likely much higher than we had expected. 
the actual overall spending on subsidies is lower than we thought it would be just because right, we don't have this many Is that right, given the premiums were also lower than expected? Well, so, they were, but it's catching up. I understand, now. but are, I, I just... Sorry, I, re- I reckon this was like an offhand point, but I'd be super interested to know are per person subsidies lower or higher than expected? Because I have so my guess is that they're we... higher because you have such a low income population, so you're paying a larger percent of the of the premium, right? So like, because you have a population that's mostly oh, all I below two hundred percent. If you had, because on average, if you had more people in the three hundred to four hundred percent, right, they'd right. Be getting low subsidies. Like I think there was an assumption. I have to look back and see if CBO actually did this, but they definitely thought more high income people would be involved. That forty three percent would right. be paying their own premium. Would be getting zero. Would be getting zero right? subsidy. So that like really right. yes. puts the per that, capita yeah. average. Right. Low. Okay. Yeah. So if you're averaging now, yeah, but. It, but that's different than sorry, and I know this is probably not that important. I'm sure but, everyone's really enjoying. This yeah, right. Now. But somebody at, at 175 percent of poverty, they are not getting a larger subsidy per se than we expected no, no, they no, would no, be because no. the premiums right. are not larger. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Agree. All right. Time we'll, for some research. <laughs> uh, okay. So so this week got a pretty clean and simple paper for you. Uh, there's a lot of methodological weeds, but the but the takeaway is is pretty clear and it's it's interesting. It's Joseph Ferry, Jonathan Rath. Baum and Catherine Massey. Uh, the paper's called Do Grandparents and Great-Grandparents Matter? Multi-Generational Mobility in the U.S. 1910 to 2013. As a, I don't know. It's not my favorite uh, title. Um, so yeah, here's their point. One question. These people had multiple generations of kids. You'll never believe. <laughs> yeah. They got to learn a little about clickbait. Um, so one thing that people have been increasingly talking about in the sort of wonky political realm is not just income inequality, but is sort of income mobility across generations. And the normal way that you study that is you compare fathers to sons and you see how it goes. Uh, and we have a finding that uh, there is a lot of stickiness in the United States uh, from fathers to sons compared to in many northern Northern European countries, a uh, similar amount as in the UK and, and Italy. Uh, and we also find that this has sort of increased a along with income inequality. Um, So common sense says, though, that like families extend further back in time than that. And when you talk about uh, someone like George P. Bush, right, it seems relevant not just that his dad was the governor of Florida, but that his uncle was governor of Texas and president of the United States, that his grandfather was also president of the United States, that his great grandfather uh, was a United States senator, right, that that's like the the Bush family, it, it goes back like a ways. And and in fact, if you keep looking at the Prescotts and the Bushes, they're like important Americans uh, for many, 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 many generations. Um, the problem is it's hard to study that kind of thing rigorously across like a broad population. Uh, but what these guys did was they, they looked at census data. Um, they do the census every 10 years. And, you know, one thing they do is they ask you uh, about your income, but they also ask you, like, who is in your family. Um, so you can create linked census data that tracks, you know, so-and-so was like a little baby in 1940, <laughs> and then he had children in 19, you know, 60 or, or 70, and then those kids are grown up in the, in the 2000 or, or 2010 census. So you can start looking at... Uh, the impact on grandparents. And and what they find is that there's a pretty strong grandparent effect and a seemingly meaningful great-grandparent effect, except even on the time horizon they're studying, it's hard to get great-grandparents. So they say just looking at the the great-grandparents means that you are underestimating income persistence by about 20%. 
right? So like the old finding in the United States was that there's very little uh, income mobility. And the new finding is that there's even less. I'd like you to to, to unpack what that finding means. So what, what was the persistence estimate before? And what does it mean that we were underestimating it by 20%? Um, that is a great question as to what the 20% is exactly a 20% of. Um, so it, it says that – so they, they say there's multiple interpretations of, of what this is, right? But that essentially you have about 70% stickiness between fathers and sons in the traditional finding um, and that there's tends to be – of the gap between fathers and sons, about a 20% snapback to like where the grandparental influence was. Not sure I understand that. Okay, so it's What does like, a snapback mean? So it, it means that there is a, a large tendency, if your dad was poorer than your grandfather, there's a large tendency for you to be richer than your dad. Oh, interesting. And, and vice versa, right? That you tend to regress Versus back. someone whose grandfather was not. Exactly. Uh, uh-huh. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So that so that you know if your if your dad and his and his dad were about the same and you're poorer than your dad. I'm going to popularize this. <sighs> so we're talking about a Gilmore Girls effect. Yes. So you so the Gilmore Girls, which is a wonderful show now on Netflix, and I I'm, I'm outing myself as somebody who's watched more than a couple episodes of it. You have the the the, <laughs> the grandparents who are rich. Then Lorelai, who's like a charismatic fuck up, basically. <laughs> and then Rory, who, because the grandparents are rich, gets to go to a fancy school and thus sets in motion the entire television series, but also becomes richer herself in later in life as a result. That's not true. She goes on to be like a blogger journalist like us. Yeah, but I mean, at the beginning of the content, the blogger journalist content game, you can go way up from there. (laughs) Yeah, look, uh, some people doing okay. The point is she goes to Yale, right? Yes. Yes. Right. And and no, no. So uh, this is actually great. They say there's multiple interpretations. Yeah, I'm I'm really, I think this is really good. I'm I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of this. That that is a great one. No. So so when they say, when they say there's multiple interpretations of the grandparent effect, right? One possibility. I didn't see that one coming. One possibility is that it's a Gilmore Girls phenomenon. Right, where literally the wealth trademark that where the, the the wealthy grandparents literally step in yeah. and intervene to boost the Rory right, socioeconomic yeah. status outcomes. Right, uh, so uh, another interpretation of this that that uh, a different researcher, Gre- Gregory Clark, who's looked a lot at, at Sweden, says this is he says that a lot of the income drop that typically the income drop is a little bit of a of a pseudo. Income drop, right? That it's not that Lorelai is a charismatic fuck up so much as that Lorelai's parents are rich. So she goes to a fancy school and she just like decides to be a poet. Uh-huh. So right. her income is low. Or work at a hotel as it might be. Well, no, no, no. Here's what I'm saying because it is a different I should say right? I don't really believe Lorelai is a fuck up. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good show that exemplifies this. Right? No, but I, I take care. I mean so we, I, we all, I we went all to, know this. I went to a fancy private high school in New York. Uh, all the parents there were super rich. When I look around at what my classmates are up mm-hmm. to, relatively few of them are – business titans. Yeah. Right? So you would see like these like huge income drop-offs. But then it's like, well, so and so has an award-winning documentary. Yes, I was film. actually going to use documentary filmmaker right? as an example. And, I know people and, like and that. And so there's like two elements to it. One is that this is actually a person who 
is able to transmit to their children a lot of social capital and prestige and clout. They go to fancy places and travel in fancy circles. And the other thing is that the life choice to go be an award-winning documentary filmmaker is predicated on the fact that you know mom and dad can help you out in a pinch. You know that their wealth will ultimately be inherited by you. So it's not important whether you personally amass enormous amounts of of savings. And so there can be a lot of um, short-term bounciness Mm -hmm. between like, do you have like lawyers and Wall Street guys? And do you have like academics and documentary filmmakers? But you're actually seeing a consistent hierarchy of prestige. I mean, a great example of this would be somebody like uh, uh, when John Rockefeller was a senator, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, part of the wealthy Rockefeller family. I think he did not make a great deal of money over the course of his life, unlike a lot of senators being a just like heir to an enormous fortune. He didn't like do a lot of paid speaking on the lecture (laughs) circuit when he steps down, stuff like that. But it's just Part of being a like rich and fancy family over the whole course of generation, you have politicians in that family, you have philanthropists, right. you have guys who invented you know giant companies. But, but but so the point here is that what we what is being identified here is is a is a privilege mechanism, right? Right, and what the the study is showing is one that privilege goes multiple generations down. And, and, and two, what you're saying in, in terms of there being multiple interpre- interpretations is it's sometimes what we think we see. One way that the two-generation studies can mislead us is that you are seeing people whose income is lower, but that is in part because the higher income of their parents gives them freedom to maybe make other choices, not having to worry as much about economic security. You can be a documentary filmmaker. Not that there's anything wrong with documentary filmmaking. You could be a blogger um, as well. My uh, like one reason. Do you it know was- any bloggers? <laughs> Um, you know, like my my parents aren't by any means rich, but my dad works at a, at a university. So I could – at the time I went into blogging, it did not look like you could make a career where you made any money there. And But I felt safe knowing that, you know, if, if things went bad, they could help me out. Um, but then the next generation, you often see um, the descendants sort of go back up the income or, or back down the income thing because they're not going to inherit the money from their parents. They need to make more money, but they also did get a lot of cultural prestige and allowed them to make more money or something else. Mm-hmm. Isn't Gregory Clark's stuff, if I'm not wrong, doesn't it have a genetic component to his arguments? Yeah, maybe. He's a little he's a little dodgy as to what he's trying to say. <laughs> okay. um, but so he finds it. So the the challenge of doing this multi-general research, right, is like, how do you get good data that stretches back across enormous uh, spans of time? Swedish administrative data, perhaps? Um, This is not what he is able to do. Now, as usual, it would be nice if you could rerun this census study with some administrative data from the IRS, which would give you uh, more detailed information about people's financial circumstances, uh, including you don't directly report wealth on your taxes, but because you have to report investment income, you can make some good inferences about it, uh, which is what's really missing from a lot of the census stuff is like, do you just get grandpa's money? Right. Um, I mean, presumably you do in many cases, but it's hard to right. see. Like, what is a privilege mechanism here is actually really important. Right. So what Clark does, because he wants to look at centuries long spans of time. So he looks at people's last names, um, which I know some people have raised uh 
various concerns about, uh, you know, he, he, he has one study in Sweden. He has one study in China. Um, I am not like an expert on Swedish naming conventions. So I've, <laughs> I've gotten a little shy about treating this as, as definitive. Uh, but what he at least claims to show is significant persistence across like four or 500 years yeah. um, in terms of like who are, who are the doctors in Sweden. And so for that, I think he, he really reaches for a genetic explanation when he looks at China because he says that you see multi-generational inequality persisting uh, across like the Mao period. Um, and he, he argues that it is unlikely that a Western democratic society is going to embark on a redistributive program that is more ambitious than the Chinese Communist Party, um, and that what you are seeing there is a, is a purely genetic element. Uh, whether that's true or not hinges on your interpretation of Chinese surname data, which <laughs> I, I really am not familiar with. <laughs> but this census data, it does not go as far back to really tell you what's happening. But it's like pretty clear cut, I think, that the sort of conventional two-generation estimate uh, is giving you a – I mean, 20% is a lot. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a significant undercount of the long range persistence. Mm-hmm. All right. That is our episode of The Weeds. Uh, if you're listening to The Weeds, you might be interested in the Ezra Klein show this week, which is an interview with Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, so you should go check that out. But whether or not you go check that out, we are grateful that you stuck around today. Uh, thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. And we will be back next week. Also, a Trump-free episode. Yeah. The dream lives. The dream shall never die.